Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Excellent. Welcome, Ryan. It's good to have you back on the Evolve Move Play podcast. Definitely. Good to be here. So you've just had a new program drop called Parkour Strengths. Tell me a little bit about what your new program is. Yeah. So we spent the past year and a half now basically filming 700 plus movement demos and they're all for free up on YouTube right now. And that was kind of like the beginning of this. We didn't know exactly where the project was going at first. Um, Actually, originally it started back in spring of 2020 when we had to shut down our HQ gym in Louisville. Yeah. Um, a couple of months into the pandemic, we realized there was just no way we were going to be able to make rent without being open and um, had to make that tough call, shut it down. And we still had a ton of students who wanted to train and we were looking for ways in the pandemic to um, do some remote training options. So we were trying out different ways to do that. And I realized it was very difficult without having videos and stuff to send people and uh, make them realize what we were talking about and what kind of workouts and programs they were on. So we started initially just filming a lot of the demos and things that I needed for that. And eventually we were just racking it up. We, I think at some point we hit like in 365 days, we had posted almost 700 videos. Um, So we were very consistent, just filming all the time. And eventually it became quite comprehensive. And we realized that as our remote training systems evolved, we were now um, basically creating the kind of, I guess, digital textbook or manual to kind of, this is what I would want our students to have access to and to know about um, before they were going to do some kind of remote training with us. So this is, I guess, um, the individualized remote training that I do nowadays is kind of like the course itself, but then um, like a college class, you have a textbook that goes along with it. And this is the the new course. It's like a digital manual handbook kind of thing where um, we, we kind of cover everything from the biomechanics, the principles of training and programming to the different movement domains, like quadrupedal movement, climbing, brachiating, um, all those different kinds of things. And then the goal is to make it extremely visual and minimalistic. So we really rely heavily on the video component. Yeah. Um, and then just trying to be concise and minimalist as well with the text. So kind of uh, getting rid of all the fluff and just being very quick to the point, the how, the why, um, the progressions. And then at the end, we filmed a bunch of loom videos, which is um, like the, yeah. where you're screen recording and you've got the little bubble in the, the mm-hmm. bottom. And I can point out and dive deeper and 
say, you know, watch out for this. And this is why we do this. And I'm just going much deeper into every single uh, one of those movements. So it's quite comprehensive and um, it was a lot of work to do, but now it's done. And so the new remote training students that I onboard into our programs, this is kind of what I expect them to work through in addition to the programming that they're on so that they kind of have a, a deeper glimpse into the how and the why and the everything that we're doing. Nice. So I should have asked you this. So, I mean, I think, you know, I guess I assume that people will know who you are because, because, you know, you and I go back a, a long time, but, um, but people might be, be logging into this and not familiar with you. So you know, you're, the, you're the founder of Apex School of Movement. You started, I think, the first parkour classes in the United States, if I'm correct, in, uh, in Boulder. Um, and we've had you on the podcast before. Really enjoyed that last conversation. And you and I go back for, for years. So, you know, one of the things that you've really been interested in from the beginning is the application of strength and conditioning to to um to parkour how do we prepare parkour athletes to be able to handle the types of stresses and be able to access the types of performance that we're looking for so tell me i'd like i'd love to have you tell me a little bit about how you kind of evolved your perspective you know where where that came from but i think it'd be fun to play with uh, like a tour scenario knowing what you know now if you got to train Ryan when he was what, 19, when you started 17 or 18, 17 or 18. So you get a time machine, you go back and you're like, I'm going to train you to be the best you could possibly ever be the Ryan who's going to be the best in all possible worlds. Where, where would you start with? And what, what were you missing? That's easy. Um, mobility. Over the years. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, so when I'm 17 or 18, I didn't even really know what mobility was. I've heard of flexibility and I thought that was for gymnasts and dancers and stuff like that. Um, my background is actually team sports. I'm kind of unusual in parkour. I did soccer from age three to 13. And then I switched over to mostly American football in high school. Okay. Um, along the way, I also did basketball, baseball, tennis, like all that kind of stuff. And then in high school, got into weightlifting because I was the scrawniest kid on the football team with no experience, whereas everyone else was already quite experienced in football. So I had some catching up to do. And that was kind of how I got into strength and conditioning in the first place. Um, but yeah, I didn't really think about mobility. I was just trying to get strong. I didn't realize that my squat sucked or that my ankles were tight. And had I known some of these things, I probably would have had a much easier time um, trying to correct some of them rather than yeah. five, 10 years later. So yeah. So did you, what position did you play when you played football? Uh, mostly wide receiver and a little bit of cornerback as well. Okay. I was pretty small, so uh, I just had to try to run fast and avoid getting hit really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I'm curious, this is kind of just a totally different tangent, but I feel like in the preparation of young athletes in particular, you know, we've realized the power of, of strength training, resistance training. But I think sometimes people aren't realizing how it can actually, you can get performance, but you can also set up barriers that, that are going to be harder for the athlete to overcome by kind of going to that well too deep, too early, rather than making sure that we're really preparing the athlete to have all the kind of physical options that they need down the road. Mm -hmm. So you've worked with a lot of youth athletes. How do you balance strength development with mobility development, particularly given your history with that? Mm -hmm. 
Well, luckily with the younger kids and even teenagers, it's much easier for them to keep what they already have and just use it and not lose it um, rather than trying to get it back as an adult. So I think just encouraging some of the lifestyle stuff as well as like when we were teaching classes in Boulder, um, you know, gathering the whole group of kids in and making them actually full squat or do a Cezas sit or something like that when we are explaining um, some of the different drills or whatever we're about to do next, just trying to encourage more time in a squat, just trying to um, almost like trick them into doing some of that, whether it's through games or drills or a little bit of strength and conditioning in the warm up and the cool down. I think you can get clever with that stuff. And uh, of course, no kid really wants to like just do that and really like focus on it. But if you are patient and you slowly kind of like teach them how to squat and you teach them eventually, like you even branch into like pistols or Kha'Zix or uh, some of these other things you can actually start to change their mind and make them realize like, Oh, I can actually like duck under this thing easier, or I can fit through this tighter space, or I can, um, stick my landing with a better squat or, you know, you've got to be patient and just explain to them why the mobility or the strength or whatever it is that you're trying to develop is important. And eventually if they are serious and open-minded, um, I think they'll come around and they'll start to at least acknowledge the benefits that they get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of took a different tack than I was thinking about. You're talking about compliance, how we get the kids to do it, which is super important conversation. Yeah. I mean, my, my question is actually more about the balance and how we identify how we're making, we're kind of, what, what I noticed is like, I'm thinking about a particular athlete. I don't know if you remember my, my student, Andrew Denhard, like we got him into strength training early and this is, you know, um, you know, when we were all, young, you know, all I knew about strength training, I learned from Mark Ripito, basically. Um, <laughs> Funny story, we were driving to New Orleans, and we went through, uh, what's that town, Wichita Falls? Wichita, uh, Wichita Falls, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we stopped by there, I was like, that's where Mark Ripito's starting strength gym is, and we, it was like midnight, and we just drove by it, and parked, yeah. and looked at it, and apparently he was in there, they messaged me later, they were like, did you go in? And <laughs> I didn't go in. I thought it was closed, but I guess he was in there working late. So <laughs> next time, next time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so I had two really, really talented athletes at that stage um, who I was working with who were young or uh, 13 and 11. So I had Andrew and Oliver and Andrew uh, and I introduced all the kind of basics of, of, of uh, strength training to them. And Andrew took to it and really like, you know, wanted to do it and was dedicated to it. And, um, he got really strong and, and Oliver basically was not interested and kind of stopped as soon as I wasn't looking. I think I know who Oliver is. Oliver Kazia. Yeah. So yeah. as it turned out, Oliver went on to become, you know, the more explosive and elastic athlete. I think Oliver may be the most physically talented jumper that I've ever seen in the parkour community. Um, when he was 16 years old he was doing standing gaps. He was doing standing jumps with Mish Todorovic at mm -hmm. the time. And it was literally only him and Mish who could do these jumps. And Mish, of course, was like power cleaning over 300 pounds. And it was a fully developed six foot three, 190 pound, utterly shredded beast. And Oliver was a skinny teenager who wasn't even mostly training parkour. He was mostly just yeah. smoking weed and skateboarding. And he'd just show up at a jam and... <laughs> Yep. and smash a jump that uh that nobody else could do um 
Oliver was naturally really mobile. Both of his parents were uh, professional dancers at one point. So like he could always do any mobility tasks that you asked of him. Andrew naturally was pretty stiff and he, his, his dad is super stiff. So you can see it's like a, a genetic thing that he's got this, this tendency to get really stiff. But as, as he developed, you know, you know, his muscle ups, his climb ups were amazing. You know, he, he was strong, he had great explosiveness, but it got, it was really hard to give him that mobility. And then he, you know, he had a, there were several reasons for this because he went to track because he wanted to get a scholarship and he had all this athleticism and parkour wasn't going to get him a scholarship. So he went to track mm-hmm. and we got, we worked with a professional track coach and got him super fast, but then he w- got destroyed by his, his high school track coach because high school coaches are often terrible. And <laughs> yeah. so they were overwhelming him with volume and they broke him down. Right. And so he tore his hamstring and <laughs> missed the, you know, his, his senior season. But I think that if I could go back and work with Andrew, I would have, I would have not worried really about introducing a strength training at that stage, not because it isn't necessarily useful for any athlete at that stage, but specifically an athlete has a tendency towards tightness and is naturally strong. I would have much more prioritized elasticity and, and mobility from the beginning with him and said, you know, when you're 19 and we've got all these things then you're going to pick up your squat and you're going to pick up your deadlift. You're going to pick up those things really fast. And we can add a little bit of extra strength onto what you're going to naturally develop through parkour, but I wouldn't have prioritized it early on in the development. And so, you know, I, I left the situation where I was getting the, the opportunity to develop young athletes like that, you know, in 2013, but you've been around that. And so I'm curious, how have you, have you, how do you balance those two attributes and how do you, and how does it come into individual variation when you're looking at the development of a youth athlete in particular? Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds kind of like me, like when I got into football and I realized I was the smallest, weakest kid on the team and I had some catching up to do, we had a weightlifting class and there were boards up on the wall where you could get your name if you lifted, you know, X amount of pounds yeah. over your body weight. So it was clean squat and bench press. And so I was just concerned with getting my name up on the board and being the first one to progress through like all three Mm -hmm. levels. And yeah, I just, I didn't think about mobility and um, looking back um, if we could balance that out. And I think it's really about like, where's the most bang for your buck, like um, filling in people's weaknesses oftentimes is going to help prevent the injuries or make them a little more well-rounded or, Maybe it's going to be just like the, the easier gains that they can, the novice effect, they're going to see mm-hmm. a lot more progress on their mobility or their strength or whatever that weakness is. If we can attack that, it can also be really motivating. I know, at least for me, I'm very like objective and I like measurable progress and numbers. And I like to see, oh, I could do this much before and now I can do this much. And yeah. that just helps keep me going. So um yeah, I was, I was just talking about some of this with some of our world chase tag athletes the other day, and they were um, concerned about the volume thing. I was explaining like Jamaican sprinters going to NCAA college programs in the U S and then actually getting worse and slower because they're doing too much volume. And yeah, I think it, you just, man, it's just a hard thing with um, strength and conditioning and athletics and parkour is you have to see such a big picture. You have to intake like so many different um, angles and information like are they fast are they powerful are they mobile are they strong is it their legs is it their upper body is it like you you're just 
peeling one layer of the onion after another and you're um, trying to figure out what do they really need like what are they actually going to benefit from so yeah unfortunately like i i hate saying this but it just depends on the person and <laughs> we're such complex beings that you have to that's actually one thing I wish more strength coaches and um, coaches in general would ask more often is they need to ask more questions to actually figure out like, what is the problem they're trying to solve and how are they trying to solve it? I actually had a guy on Instagram DM me just a few days ago and he was like, um, it was actually all in Spanish. So there was a little bit of a, um, I think some stuff lost in translation that I was using Google translate and we were talking back and forth and he was pointing out how I tend to round my back a lot. And my, he said, my gait was a little bit funny or odd. And, um, he was saying that he could help me and he wanted to prescribe this or that so that I could get better. And I had to explain to him, like, I'm very aware of all this stuff. Like I have extremely tight ankles. It's been a problem for a long time. I've had a surgery on my right ankle surgery on my left knee, and I've been doing everything I can. Um, but this guy maybe should have just asked a few more questions to, gather that information to make a better um proposal of what yeah. needed to be done yeah <laughs> so i wanted to go back quickly to the idea of like when do you strengthen your weaknesses versus leveraging your strengths like i think a lot of athletes are actually really successful by kind of leaning into their strengths yeah um uh one of my former students and, and good friends is michael tankovich who uh who was the he was a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer with the Seahawks for a number of years. And now he's working for the military, but um, he's talking about Marshawn Lynch, who's maybe one of the top, mm. you know, five running backs the last 20 years. Yeah. One of my favorite players. Yeah. Yeah. Lynch is an amazing player. He was, he was so stiff. He would, he would score a zero on every FMS test. Right. Mm-hmm. It was always stiffness, overcoming stiffness. Right. And what he liked to do was stuff that, that, run people over. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> it felt like what he was good at. Right. Or, you know, Ben Johnson, who's, you know, the famous sprinter, right. He would run and hide when the longer sprint sessions were, were there. Right. Like you could look at him and say, you know, his, his cardiorespiratory was a relative weakness. So maybe you want to bring that up, but that actually didn't really suit his athletic profile or what he was trying to do. So there, there are times when we're going to, so some weaknesses are, are performance limiting, right? And those you really need to focus on. And some weaknesses are, are, are not actually, they're just kind of, uh, they, may be, they, they may be almost necessary components of what the athlete's strength is. Um, so I'm curious how, how you think about that when you're looking at an athlete, like how do I know that and, and the other thing is, is the motivational piece, right? Like you said, it's motivating to be able to make those quick gains, but sometimes your weaknesses are the areas that you don't make quick gains in. Like sure. your ankles are your weakness, right? How, how fast have you been able to make gains in, uh, in, in ankle dorsiflexion? <laughs> yeah. Not very fast. Right. So, I, I mean, how motivating is that when you're like, okay, last two months of dedicated work have resulted in zero degrees of increased ankle dorsiflexion yep. on the goniometer. So when do you, when do you say, okay, um, like that's, that's just going to like, it's just, there's better, there's more low hanging fruit somewhere else that I can use to fill in the fact that my ankle isn't, isn't, isn't going to improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, a couple of things come to mind. I think I read about some coaches talking about this with like Michael Jordan's jump shot or something like yeah. 
They're saying um, if they're if you found some flaw with Michael Jordan's jump shot and you're trying to fix it and you make him worse, I mean, it's probably not worth it because he's already the best basketball player in the league. So yeah. it's working for him. If whatever that weird thing is, it's still working for him. So maybe it's better off to just leave it alone. And um, I guess, it, yeah, it depends on the person like Marshawn Lynch, Ben Johnson. These are like elite world-class athletes who are already doing pretty well. And um, yeah, maybe you don't want to mess with that. But in my case, or a lot of the people that we work with, they are not elite athletes yet. Um, so we want them to stay safe, not get injured. We want them to um, keep progressing as an athlete. So it's, I guess it's, it's asking more questions. Like, what are your goals? What do you want to do with this? Where do you want to go with this? Um, why are you training? Are you trying to become that elite athlete or are you trying to become somebody who can play with their kids at the playground and not get hurt? Um, so yeah, I would just ask more questions. And again, it's just like, it depends. And you really, I'm always a big fan of the individualization. I try not to make like too many blanket statements. And when people make too many of those blanket statements or recommendations, and I think that's kind of a red flag. Yeah. I think the, the, the heuristic of like, I think with novices generally, you have a lot more low hanging fruit as far as improving the weaknesses. Whereas once you work with elite athletes, like there might be a reason a weakness is a weakness. Um, mm -hmm. it might be a little bit harder to, to get the change that you're looking for. Um, and then also with novices, a lot of times they don't have clear performance endpoints that they're motivated towards. So you can just sort of generally make them better. Right. Yeah. But with, with elite athletes, you know, you have to ask is, is it worth the time to strengthen this weakness? If it's not actually performance limiting, how do I, how do I recognize what are those key performance metrics that I can then, that we can then invest in? And then how do we hire, make a hierarchy of what, what, what is, what's important for that athlete, which is, is going to be variable, right? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of coaches, they got to learn to maybe put their ego aside just a bit more. We get sometimes um, too obsessed with the metrics, the KPIs. It's like, we want to get them to jump farther or we want their um, weighted pull up or, you know, whatever it is, we want that to get better. And we maybe get too distracted by increasing those numbers. And maybe we don't even notice that they're actually not even performing in their actual sport better. Yeah. So that's what matters most, right. Is we want to get them better at their sport and make sure that those goals and metrics are actually, you know, specific and transferable. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not about the strength coach and the, the numbers. You, all the time. <laughs> I've had so many of these conversations with people in the strength and performance industry of like, I was the guy who was obsessed with my squat numbers mm -hmm. and I was the worst player on the football team. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I, and then I, and then I became the strength trainer for the next generation of football players. Cause I was the guy who, who really liked being in the strength training room. And then I was, then I was trying to make all these athletes like me when I was the worst player mm. on my team. And then, you know, and then, and then eventually like most of the guys I talk to, it's like a light bulb turns on and they're like, okay. Um, it actually, what, what is, what is happening on the field and how do I, how do I change that? Okay. Um, so it's a funny thing where, yeah, sometimes you're, you're, those metrics don't matter. I just actually, actually just hired a personal trainer myself. And I, you know, we had a, 
or I'm in the hiring process and we had to sit down and I was like, I don't care how much I squat. I don't care how much I deadlift. I don't care how much I weighted pull. I don't care. I don't care about any of these things except in how they drive, how far I can jump, how high I can jump, how fast I can do climb ups and muscle ups and how resilient I am to injury. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. Coaches hiring coaches to help them out. What, yeah. what is the primary motivations for you? Is it um, getting another perspective or offloading some of the the worry of writing and doing your own program or what is it for you? For me? Um, yeah, it's offloading the thinking, right? It's like, I, I, I say that generally coaches are their own worst athletes, right? It's like, you, you know what you should do, but you don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because taking the time for yourself and saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to spend the next three hours working on my own program. And then I'm going to, and then I'm going to prioritize showing up for my program when I've got entrepreneurial demands and family demands and athlete demands. It's like, I got to go help this athlete. So yeah. often it's just not going to happen. Like you just, but if you, if you give somebody else money <laughs> and you commit to time that you're going to show up with them, then it forces you to prioritize your own training. So I think that's a really important reason why a coach would hire a coach. Another thing is that you're just, there's, there's a certain value to just having someone who can look at you from the outside, right? right? And who can see you. So you get accountability and you get to offload some of your thinking onto somebody else. And you get someone who can tell like you, like when I was first or like really getting into strength training, um, I was, I was always the coach, right? And so I had all these athletes who were, you know, squatting to depth with great form. And then I would look a video, a video of myself and I'm not getting depth and yeah. my back's rounded and nobody would call me on it because I'm the top of the hierarchy. Right. Right. So sometimes it's hard to see some it's, it's hard to know without somebody else cueing you sometimes, whether you've actually done the thing that you thought, thought you did. Right. So that's, that's my motivation for it personally. Right. Well, that's cool. I, I think that's uh more people need to kind of admit that and uh, be open-minded to do that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard to get even athletes to, to hire coaches in the parkour community, let alone oh, yeah, coaches. Man. Yeah. I was just thinking about a little bit of that. And then in contrast, what's um, actually very interesting and cool to me nowadays is seeing some of the UFC athletes and how much they value their coaching and how much oh, they yeah talk about it. And it's just, that's really cool to me. I hope more sports kind of follow in the footsteps there because, um, yeah, personally, I, the sport I watch the most nowadays is UFC MMA type stuff. And, uh, yeah, yeah they've got to have a whole team behind them. They've got to have their striking and their jujitsu and their this and that. And it's, it's a lot of work, man. They got, they got to keep yeah. that. And I, I love to, I love, I love to watch the coaching in that arena because it's at a very high level. It's, it's interesting. I, I pay a lot of attention to the UFC because I've also been a martial artist since I was six years old. And I'm like, I, I train MMA. Mm -hmm. um, I usually get about four to five months of, of MMA training in a year and then life happens. And like, basically I, I just assume that between June and September, I'm going to be I'm going to be too, doing too many parkour things to handle any other training. Yeah. Um, but, but anyways, I have been doing that for the last four years. Uh, again, after, after a background of that, 
so I, so I, I take an interest in that obviously. Um, but I also take an interest in basketball. And what's interesting is that I don't really, I don't watch basketball games. I watch basketball analysis because I like the systems thinking that's involved like in basketball YouTube, analysis. YouTube yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there, you can just tell that there's a lot of really smart people who are applying a really high level of thinking to it. And it helps you think about how you analyze things. Right. So it's like, if I watch thinking basketball um, on YouTube, I feel like I can then go watch a, a parkour speed competition and have a better set of conceptual tools to, to yeah. think about it. It's like, it inspires me, but um, I love like Trevor Whitman and John Donaher and Faraz Zahabi and all those guys. And like, just, just seeing the way that they apply themselves to trying to solve movement problems. Cause that's fundamentally what we're doing as coaches too. And um, you know, they're working with athletes who make millions of dollars. We're making, working with athletes who don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, that's always been one of the, I think one of the best pieces of advice I could give people for almost any industry is to go outside of your industry and find things that are maybe a little bit different, but similar. Like MMA is not completely different than parkour. Yeah. Um, it's obviously a very different sport, but we can learn a lot from those coaches, like you said. And when you take their terminology or their systems or their concepts, and then you kind of, you bite and rewrite um, a breakdancing term or like the Bruce yeah. Lee stuff, absorb, reject, and add what's uniquely your own. Mm -hmm. um, that's always been one of my biggest things is going into like football and soccer and MMA and track and field and um, trying to learn as much as I can there and then bring it back into parkour where maybe some of these people have never even heard of yeah. anything in that sport. And then <laughs> you sound like a genius because you're bringing in some new idea from elsewhere, but maybe like transforming and like molding it into something a little bit different. So can you think of anything specific from like MMA that, or, or another sport, but you know, you can start with MMA that you've learned that has really helped you understand how to prepare athletes, how to develop skill in, um, in parkour. Hmm. Specifically from MMA. If, if you, yeah, if something pops to, uh, up from a different sport, that's fine too. Um, yeah, actually, even though I love MMA these days, um, something that comes to mind a little bit more off the top of my head is I've spent the past few years going really deep into track and field specifically mm -hmm. like short sprints and horizontal jumps and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I've gone deep into some of the Altus course stuff and nice. you've, you've worked with them a little bit yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, the, the Altus guys and various other um, coaches and stuff that I find online and um, books and whatnot, but yeah, I just, I realized that speed parkour is um, one of the things that I find most interesting in parkour because I think it's objective and measurable. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually have a number at the end of your run and see, did I improve it and then run it again? And maybe you got a little bit better or worse and you can figure out why you film it, you test and retest, and you kind of uh, solve these problems as they come up. But yeah, going into track and field and specifically the short sprints and horizontal jumps, I found a lot of really interesting stuff from um, those different courses and coaches in the industry and being able to take that and apply it to parkour. And also, um, some of our world chase tag guys, for example, yeah. this is a really interesting one. Um, it's a very like random connection, but we originally made this connection specifically for speed parkour, which is, uh, you know, baseball players when they're leading off from first base and they're getting mm -hmm. ready to steal the base, they're trying to yeah. steal second base. They get that like really low, like almost kind of horse stance or Kazakh squat kind of yeah. thing. 
and then they're waiting for that pitcher to commit to the pitch. And then as soon as they find the right timing, they do, I call it a steel start because I didn't know if it had a name. I haven't been able to find a name anywhere. I think I know but the it, name, but go ahead. Okay. It's like, a, so they, they're in this lateral position and then they turn and they take that little drop step and then yep. they fire out into an acceleration and they steal second base. So we originally started experimenting with that in speed parkour when you have um, maybe an awkward start and you got to run through the starting laser, um, but you only have a couple steps. You can maybe actually, or you're like pushing off a wall or something. Weird yeah, like a lot that. of times you have that wall hand. Yeah. So we were experimenting with that really like um, kind of low lateral stance and the drop step and being able to generate more acceleration and get into that um, next thing in the speed parkour run as quickly as possible. So just looking into how other sports treat acceleration and sprinting and um, just noting that it's funny in parkour, everyone's so distracted by the obstacles. They're worried about this vault or this rail precision landing or this or that with the obstacle and they forget or they neglect everything that's in between, which is the mm -hmm. running and the sprinting and acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, cutting, dodging, um, all this kind of stuff. So I found that just working on sprinting stuff with a lot of our athletes is even our higher level athletes. It's like one of those final little puzzle pieces that they never like fully put into their skill set, and just being able to um, get them better at sprinting acceleration deceleration has carried over a lot to better speed parkour and also world chase tag is um, kind of a an extension of speed parkour mixed with martial arts mixed with chess and yeah mixed with stuff, so. mixed with actually team sport dynamics right because one thing that we actually don't have a lot of in parkour is what's considered true agility right which is you know you you're interacting with another moving agent and based on the way they move, then you have to change direction, right? Yeah, the so, spontaneity and yeah, the so you have to see you have to see that that the lane has opened for you to go left, or the lane has opened for you to go right, and then react to that and change direction quickly. That's a major aspect of athletic development in you know in football, baseball, basketball, um, any field sport, right, where there is uh, direct player interaction. Even something like tennis, you're really doing that as you read the read the player and you know have to change direction. Yeah. So, so we don't really do that when we practice parkour solo, right? It only happens mm -hmm. once you start to add player interaction. But I actually yeah. think it's huge, huge key to like if you wanted to produce the most general athletic ability that would transfer to lots of situations, you need that player to player interaction. I actually think also from a self-defense perspective, if you think about parkour as actually reaching and escaping, mm -hmm. you got to reach and escape people. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a big thing. So I love, I love world chase tag. We should talk more oh. about that, but I wanted to go back to the, um, by the, the way, what's the, was that uh steel start called? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's called a, well, here's the interesting thing. Um, I think drop step is a way of, uh, of describing it, but a lot of times it was called a false step and it actually, many coaches try to coach their athletes out of doing that. Yeah. I think I saw a study on that. Yeah. Yeah. So the athletes, so basically <laughs> um, if you're standing in a lateral stance in the direction that you want to go, you need to get your, um, you need to get your shin to be angled mm -hmm. to start propelling you horizontally. But um so in order to do that, what a lot of athletes do is they move their foot back 
So they start pushing off and letting their hips fall in that direction. They move their foot back towards their center of mass to initiate the run. So a lot of athletes thought that that was inefficient because they, they were, they were moving backwards when they should be moving forwards or like a small waste of time. Yeah. But they're actually moving backwards in order to create a better position that allows them to move forwards. So a Darian bar has talked a lot about that and about understanding shin angle change. And I think kind of some of his stuff is really interesting there. Uh, Bobby White's another guy. There's a bunch of guys who've talked about, um, about this application. Um, actually, um, I think it was part of performance science was the first time that I saw them talking about that, like with Ricky Henderson, um, that he did that. And they're like, all these coaches, it's wrong. I was Googling or just looking up on YouTube, Ricky Henderson, baseball steel. That was like my main form of studying this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ricky Henderson is the greatest base stealer in, in, in baseball history. And it's like, if he's, if he does it that way, Really, like we're, we're saying it's wrong, and yeah. I, this actually came up recently because uh, so my my son, who's seven years old, he started uh, he did his first season of flag football this year, and they had them all doing lateral movement, and they were like coaching them out of doing the false step, mm. and I was like, oh no, 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 don't do this. You had to explain to him later. <laughs> I was like, ignore that, <laughs> but you know they didn't like they said it once and then never came back to it. And all the kids basically couldn't understand it anyway. So it didn't really matter um, at that stage. But, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of this, these, these models that people have of what they think are correct mechanics that are actually wrong and ignore how the body self-organizes or they think they understand one aspect of the physics, but then there's some other aspect of the physics, uh, the way that works out that it means it's, it's wrong in practice. Yeah. Or they're actually doing what they think they're not doing because they're a good athlete and they figured it out, but they didn't realize it. (laughs) Yeah. I remember that with, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this, but I remember that with climbups, right? Like when, when we were first learning to do climbups, symmetrical climbups, uh, Mm -hmm. in the U S I remember a time when it was basically like you and Ryan and Tyson and Levi were the only people I knew of in the U S who could do a straight climb up. And I watched Tyson teach climb-ups and tell people to put both feet on the wall and push with both of them. Mm. And then I watched him perform the climb-up and he drops one leg and swings it up. And you were doing the same thing. And Levi was doing the same thing. But I ha- but everyone was coaching people to do something that the only athletes who could actually perform the skill weren't doing. But those athletes didn't actually realize it. I don't know if you realized that at the time. But, uh, but I, I didn't see anyone actually recognizing that. No, I, we went through something similar where, uh, I think it was actually like Dylan and Amos and a yeah. couple other people at apex folder back in the day where I think over, it's like this one week or month or something where we all kind of had this epiphany that I didn't realize. So you start with your foot staggered in the cat yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people were stepping up with this leg and then also kicking back with it, but it's a little more efficient if you step up and then alternate yep. and kick back yep. with the other. And I never even thought about that until I think it was Dylan or Amos or somebody was pointing it out. And then we, it all started to like click and yeah. Yeah. And I remember I went that. those phases as well. You can also see that with, uh, with pop vaults, right? So if someone puts the one foot on the wall and pops up to support, and then they'll kick off the same foot and you'll see that there's a, there's a, a reset before they're able to kick. Whereas if they were able to, to catch it in stride, actually Ryan and uh, Renee, Renee and Tom from, uh, from origins just published a video about that, about that small little flow hitch that comes from not being able to 
you know what that is, is it's dominance of the legs, right? It's like, which leg do you dominantly press with and kick with? And when you're not comfortable doing both with both legs, then you're going to sometimes have those places where you're, where you're having to yeah. reset in order to get to the foot that you're comfortable with. Yeah. Speaking of that, that's still one of the biggest things that I find even in the highest level, like speed parkour athletes is they are extremely um, dominant on one side of their climbups and they maybe don't even train the other side. So a lot of the programming that I'll give is, you know, like do all the climbups like this and then, whoa, like crazy thought, switch it, <laughs> do it on the other side as well. And uh, actually Seth Wang comes to mind. He's an incredible speed parkour world chase tag guy. Yes. Um, we did a couple of blocks of programming with him where I just made him do like basic climb up stuff, but on both sides. And he said that was one of the most helpful things that he ever did for like some of the speed parkour comps. Yeah. So. You have to have that option, right? Depending yeah. on how you arrive, right? Got to be able to wall run on both legs too. Yep. That's one thing that I really like actually about training in nature is that it, it really constrains you to have to do things on both sides a lot of the time a lot of time you just don't have the option of doing it another way so i'm mm -hmm. i'm a dominant left leg jumper but volunteer park which was my main training area it just so happened that like a lot of the biggest jumps were much better aligned if you were taking off your right leg so i became much more confident in my right leg jumping than most of the other athletes that i know in parkour were on their off leg yeah. Those, I imagine those uneven surfaces and odd angles and everything yeah. like that kind of helps as well. Yeah. I'm still super asymmetrical on my climb ups, though. I got to put some work in on that. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to talk about, well, actually, before we get to that, I want to talk about sprinting because that's something that I'm super interested in is I, I've been like, I mean, I'm, I'm 39 years old. I've got three kids, um, running an entrepreneurial show, trying to train, uh, trying to train in, in not just parkour, but martial arts and all these things. Mm -hmm. So my big thing is like, what is the biggest bang for your buck athletically? Right. And so it's yeah. like, how do I minimize, minimize, minimize? Like if it's not, what are the drivers of performance that I have to have and what can I let go of? Right. Pareto, Pareto problem. How do I get that 20% that gives me 80% of the benefit? Mm -hmm. And I, I've tended to think that sprinting is probably the most overall developmental athletic activity out of something aside of something like parkour. And and so I, I, I believe in prioritizing sprinting. So I'm curious about your experience of, of adding sprinting in for parkour athletes. But I also think that, well, yeah, tell me, just tell me if you agree with that. And then also how you've applied it and what kind of transformations you've seen as you've applied it and how it compares to something like strength training. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you in some ways. Um, I think it's crazy that it is one of those most bang for your buck type things. And it's so overlooked and neglected, um, not just in parkour, but I think in, in almost every sport or like athletes in general, mm -hmm. um, they're not training like athletes when they avoid sprinting and they don't. Yeah. Sprint. Yeah. Um, and even just the general population, like why is the general population avoiding training like an athlete? Mm -hmm. um, they, they're just, even if they're a little more advanced, they're like lifting weights or they're doing this or that. And they're, they're still not sprinting like mm -hmm. oftentimes. So, yeah, I think 
Um, that is odd to me that people avoid it um, because it is so important. And I knew this, like I did track and field in middle school and high school. Um, and I dealt with team sports where you have to do a lot of sprinting as well. So I was, I guess I, I took it for granted as like, I just overlooked it as this basic skill. It's, you know, it's just running. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? You can't run, <laughs> just do it. Um, and then you, like we were saying in parkour, people, they're focused on the wall and the rail and the vault and the this and that, the obstacles, and they overlook the sprinting. So I think once you, it's almost like disguised, it's overlooked and neglected, like I said. And um, when we can maybe realize that there's, you know, something a little bit deeper to look there. Yes, it, it definitely is one of the most bang for your buck type things. And I think it's also one of the most accessible, which is yeah. really important as well. It's accessible and minimalist. You can do it anywhere. And um, I was saying earlier that I'm talking to you before this call. Um, we're basically nomadic at this point. And mm-hmm. so we haven't been lifting a lot because it's kind of hard, you know, when you're bouncing from San Diego to Denver and then New Orleans, and then we're here in Oahu right now. Um, it's just kind of hard to get into this routine where you can lift, you know, two or three times a week. So what I've been doing personally is just go find a hill and sprint up it. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like rocket science or anything, but um, yeah, I've gotten a lot of benefit out of it. Just um, it, I feel my glutes getting sore, my hamstrings, my calves, um, I'm getting some cardio. I'm becoming more powerful. You can see the, the free gains and you're jumping and you're landing and some of the other explosive movements as well. And yeah, I think there's a lot to look deeper into sprinting and acceleration, deceleration work for athletes in all sports. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that I think about sprinting is, so I generally prioritize exercises that use more of the body and also more of the systems of the body. So, um, I would raw, if I'm going to go into the gym and lift weights, right. I'm going to, I'm going to do squats rather than, you know, leg curls Mm -hmm. because there's more muscles that are going to be affected by it. In fact, like if you're holding a heavy barbell on your back, you're actually, you're getting a lot of upper body development too. Right. Right. So squat is a relatively, complete exercise. Um, sprinting is the same, right? People don't realize it. Like your arms work really hard when you're sprinting. So you're developing (laughs) every muscle in the body, basically also the forces involved in sprinting. And this is probably something that changes a lot as we go from a more novice athlete to an elite athlete, but for explosive athletes, um, the forces that you can create sprinting are far higher than you can ever create in the weight room. Right. Like you're going to be hitting the ground with 10 times body weight potentially on a, on a stride. It's like you're, you're, you can only do that because it's a relatively short period of time that that force is applied to the body, but also it biases the development of the elastic tissues over the development of the muscle tissues, which is actually generally what we want in athletes. We want their elastic tissues to be stronger than the muscles. We want elasticity to be prioritized over over just pure muscle bulk and strength. Um, and then, and then you're also getting cardiorespiratory gains, right? You get cardiorespiratory gains from weightlifting too. Um, you know, the heart has to work, but it, it really is a very complete athletic development system in that sense. So that's why I think it's, you know, and then the other thing that, that they talk about in the sprint world, and I, I think this is probably true, but I don't know enough about it to be certain, but that the neural changes that are associated with sprinting are particularly powerful in downstreaming to other activities because they essentially 
improve rate coding and things better than anything else. Mm-hmm. So you're, you get a reserve of sort of athletic potential above what you're going to express anywhere else. So this is why I like sprinting. The flip side of that is that I find sprinting is, um, um, sorry, I'm, there's too many thoughts here. Yeah, <laughs> um, no I want to go just for a second. I think it's interesting too, that we generally, I generally believe that complexity translates to simplicity better than vice versa. So parkour athletes sprint all the time as in they try to run fast between two things, but because they're always having to control their footwork in order to set themselves up for a vault, the relative expression of their max speed is pretty low. Yep. And also what we see is artifacts that, that come in from focusing on the coordination of the, of the, of the movements over the obstacles rather than the, the sprint action, right? We see this really in gymnasts, right? If you watch gymnasts, they sprint really awkwardly because they're, my, my, my understanding is that they're, they're mentally preparing the motor program of this extremely complex, very dangerous skill that ends the sprint, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're so also see, on spring floors and- Yeah. So they see these very strange activities because essentially it's like the motor pattern of the vault has bled into the sprint. And I see the same thing happen with parkour athletes. If they don't ever just run, then- you start seeing these, these weird habits that translate into the way that they run and they're not good at sort of settling into a running pattern. So that's some of the, what I've been thinking about with sprinting. Um, and then, and then what I've, what I've also noticed, like there's a lot of parkour athletes who have broad jumps and vertical jumps that are elite, right? Like you, they could go to the NFL combine and compete with the wide receivers in broad jumping and sprinting, mm-hmm. and they would just be wasted in the sprints. Yeah. Right. Like myself, like when I was the highest I tested, it was like a 32 inch vertical, nine foot, nine inch standing broad jump, four, nine, five, 40. And I worked on it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I went and, and trained with the sprinter. Right. But that's slow. For yeah, a 200 pound jumping like a wide receiver and sprinting like a lineman. <laughs> exactly. Right. There are 310 pound men in the NFL who can't jump as far as me, can jump as high as me, but can run faster than me. Yeah. And so we have, we have, it's like, I think that's the, one of the biggest missing pieces of elite performance for parkour athletes is if we can have a higher speed reserve, everything else is going to improve. I believe. Definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. A few thoughts there just to, I mean, I mostly agree with you, but a couple other things that came to mind, you were saying, um, talking about the complete complexity and simplicity, um, concept. And one thing that I think a lot of people in speed parkour are not thinking about, um, they don't need to think about this, but it is starting to become a thing where, I don't know if you've seen some of the fig competitions where it's, it's yeah. basically just a straight shot where they're going back and forth down and um, back to the start. And, it's actually quite different than what we've seen in a lot of the speed parkour competitions historically at apex and origins. And like some of these things where it's, it's a lot more like um, convoluted or like rounded or zigzaggy and curved and Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that, where I think the, the the speed competitions that we do at apex and origins um, and in classes and just our own training where it's, it's a lot of this precise footwork and change of direction and zigzagging and stuff like that it carries over to the straight line shot, like fig style competitions 
much better than vice versa. So I've worked with a few athletes who do the fig competitions and um, they do need to practice some of that like straight back and forth, but I think it's actually maybe a little more um, bang for your buck or um, beneficial to do more of the training with the, the zigzaggy curving um, kind of style, because you're going to get really good at that style and it's going to carry over to the straight shot stuff. But I don't think it's as much if you do that the other way around. Yeah. So that's almost contrary to the thesis that we were just talking about with, with the role of sprinting because they are basically sprinting more when they do those, those straight courses, but there's, there's some interesting balance here. And we're seeing the same type of conversation happen in the team sport world where people are like, you know, there's one argument that everyone in team sports should just go run track in their off season. And then they're going to be fast. And we can see that, you know, like you can look at like, uh, there's this guy, Carlin Isles, who's a former elite sprinter who went over to play rugby and he just, just blast paths people, right? His speed reserve is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this idea that, that really like what running is for an NFL running back or a cornerback um, or a soccer player is so much more complicated and involves not just direct, you know, acceleration and max velocity involves it involves change of direction, like lateral curves, um, reading the field, obviously, and, and more of their prep should be spent on sprinting in context. And I was actually thinking about this recently with, with, um, with my own parkour training, I was thinking, okay, some of my time I want to devote to actually go like to me, a track, an actual track training session is like an overspeed session for a, for, for a track athlete. Like you get overspeed by doing a slight downhill or having someone pull you because the speed you're going to express is going to be really high on the track. But for a parkour athlete, if we're going, you know, 50 miles an hour at maximum and we go to a track and we hit 20, 21, because the track actually does give more, more return to your step. And you put spikes on, you get better traction. You can sprint faster than you're ever going to be able to sprint on concrete, on grass. I mean, if we look at um, the fastest recorded NFL players, they're running 23 and a half miles per hour. You take that same athlete and you, and you ask, what is his fat? If, if he did run track, you can see that they run about 26 miles per hour on the track. So they're getting three miles per hour more. They're getting exposure to what it feels like to be at that speed, exposure to have the coordination patterns of being at that speed. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there should be some, I think there's some value to this overspeed training for a parkour athlete. Yeah. But then maybe you also need to like, like I was thinking about a jump that I want to do that involves running across a kind of uneven rocky terrain and just like going out and running the, the course leading up to it as a sprint where I'm actually measuring how fast I improve my ability to run across that. So go in, run it, time it, do it repeatedly, come back. And yeah, so I've been, I've been playing with that idea of how, and this, this gets to an overall theme that I really wanted to dig into you with, which is how do we balance our approach to general physical attribute development, special physical attribute development and skill development? Right. One of the things that I think is interesting about what you've done with parkour strength is that you've, you've really sort of focused on developing a lot of what could be considered special strength exercises for parkour. 
So have you looked at special jump exercises, special sprint exercises for parkour? Yeah. Yeah. Um, remind me to get back to that. I just wanted to mention something else real quick that was on um, what we were just saying, but, uh, you were bringing up like NFL uh, football players and, um, this sprint work and, um, overspeed training, the straight shot stuff on the track, but actually in, um, in football, like you're, you're dodging defenders and you're curving and zigzagging and cutting and dodging. And, um, this reminds me of, there's a few months back in Ohio for the world chase tag, um, USA competition, which was hosted by a former like elite NFL running back, Rashad Jennings, who is also, um, he won dancing with the stars. So he's, he's got, he's a big dude. He's like six, four, 230 pounds or something like that. And he can move very well. Um, we got to hang out with him a bit and kind of, um, pick his brain as far as like what he thought about world chase tag and, um, what he kind of did in his own career to be successful as a football player. And actually I filmed this, I can send you the clip later on um, because I wanted to remember everything he was saying. And a lot of our guys wanted to take notes on it as well, but he was talking about, um, it's going to be kind of difficult to explain, but I'll do my best. Um, he was telling all of this while he was also showing it. So he was saying that a lot of the stuff that he did in football, he, he would have really interesting footwork where he was maybe like approaching the sideline and um, going fairly fast, but not full speed yet. But mm-hmm. he would make his feet look like he was going fast because he wanted the defender to think that he was already at top speed. And then as soon as the defender would plant on his leg, or like signal that it was time for him to like put the turbo, like put the jets on, then he could do that and just blow by them. So he was, he had this really like kind of odd rhythm and like uh, footwork that was making it look like he was going really quick and he was moving yeah. his legs really fast. But in reality, he was going like maybe 70, 80% speed. And he then would, he would be able to switch that yeah. and then go full speed. And it was, it was just a really interesting concept because yeah, I think, I can yeah, we go on that for a second? Because I th- found that really fascinating. I actually just had a conversation with Rob Gray from the Perception Action Podcast about ecological psychology and dynamics. And we're talking about the idea of like, to what degree are athletes intentionally predicting what's going to happen and manipulating the other player versus creating options and then grabbing the affordances as they come. Mm-hmm. And and I was talking about, I, I think that the ecological dynamics approach tends to not want to think about they tend to think, how can we explain things through what the athletes is reading in the environment rather than what they're projecting in their head? And I think that's generally correct, but I think this is a case where it's not correct, where you're actually, the athlete has to have a, a, a model that they're using to some degree to, um, to, to predict what, how the world is going to behave and then be able to manipulate how it's going to behave. Mm-hmm. And, and what it sounds like this athlete was doing, which is fascinating to think about decoupling these things and being able to control it and use it as a form of manipulation. You know, if you're sprinting, your speed is controlled by the combination of your stride length and your stride um, rate, right? Mm-hmm. So generally a, a sprinter who's just a sprinter is going to be trying to scale those on, on a one-to-one basis as, as, one thing increases, the other increases, or you're going to increase them both at the rate that's optimal for, for speed development. But if an athlete is able to, um, to decouple their stride rate from their stride length, right. Move their legs fast, but not put a lot of force in 
they can create a visual illusion. And we see this, which is really funny. Like, you know, that if you have an athlete who's six, three run through a course next to an athlete, who's five, four, if they run the same speed, the five, four athlete looks faster because they're going to have higher stride rate and lower stride length. Right. Like that's how they solve the, the equation. So like back in the day, me and Tom Coppola from origins, like we had a really similar time on a course. Right. And I look like I'm sort of gallivanting slowly across the course on my giant legs. Right. Yeah. And he looks like he's just blasting, right. Super fast because you know, I'm eight inches taller than Tom or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that idea that you, that you would decouple those and be very good at it uh, as a way of manipulating people is actually a fascinating idea. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think there's obvious, um, carry over to like world chase tag, for example, yep. if you make it look like you're going fast, but you're not at top speed. And, um, I've seen actually, there's a few players, they almost have this like drunken style where they're, they're like tricking people into thinking they're going, yeah. they're going to be there at this time, but they're actually going to be there way earlier than you think. Yeah. Um, but going back to the, to finish that football story yeah. um, with Rashad Jennings and what I was kind of thinking about and how it carries over to parkour as well is, um, so he was manipulating his footwork to look like he's going faster than he is so that he can turn on a switch and then um, blast past somebody who is not ready for his top speed. And this brings up another like layer of complexity in the sprint work. Like you were saying on the track, it's just like, you know, go as fast as you can in a straight shot and you're trying to um, increase your stride length and your stride frequency and these things. And it's, it's very simple when you kind of break it down like that, but in reality, in most sports, um, there's all these other layers. And one other really important one, I think in parkour and other sports as well is, um, changing the rhythm. So like you're, you're maybe going 70, 80% speed, but do you still have good form? Do you still have, you know, the right, um, contact times to mm -hmm. match up with this percentage speed that you're going? It's, um, so if you've ever jumped on a trampoline, you know, that if you try to jump on a trampoline, like you're jumping on hard yeah. ground, it just doesn't work. You have to like slow everything down to kind of match up with the bounciness of the trampoline. And so I think there's a lot of benefit to like, I have a lot of our athletes now, um, who do speed parkour world chase tag, and they they're doing a lot of the sprint work, but we're doing stuff that is not necessarily full speed all the time. We're doing like the a skips, the dribbles, yeah. we're doing walking speed. We're doing like, um, I hate the word jogging, but we'll say jogging speed, full on mm -hmm. sprinting speed. I want them to be able to do all these different things at different rhythms and speeds, because when you're, maybe you vault over that thing or you're going under this or like about to go into a wall run. If you were to hit that at hundred percent top speed, you might screw up because it's a really complex footwork pattern. But if you get good at like controlling these different rhythms and maintaining good form and um, contact times, elasticity, then instead of having to slow down to like 60% before you go into this next thing, maybe you only slow down to 70 or 80%, but you still manage and like manipulate that to get into the next thing quicker. So um, we're trying to not only get faster at sprinting, but like better at not top speed stuff too. So like controlling yeah. the rhythm and yeah, the last time that we, we talked, I was introducing you to my theory of, of the elements of flow and parkour rhythm, direction, uh, displacement, structure, um, perception, uh, orientation, and that role of rhythm is super important. And so like, if you're, if you're, if you're navigating a course, 
what's going to happen generally is like, if you, if you imagine there's a, there's a, a series of gaps between obstacles that you have to run through. Um, and those gaps are of relatively random distance. The likelihood that they align perfectly with your optimal stride pattern to be sprinting all out is essentially zero, right? Okay. So you're always having to, to, to steer just like in some sense, just like an athlete in, in football is they have to, they're, they're not just going as fast as possible. Some anywhere, right. They're, they're having to get to a specific gap, right. Mm-hmm. And they have to do it in a way that, that allows them to have options and be coordinated when they arrive. So you, you know, if you, if you accelerate out of a vault, right. Or out of a, whatever, out of a parkour movement, and you hit like 80% of your top speed, but then it sets you up on a, on a footing that's not going to allow you to arrive with good coordination at the next thing. And you may have to break really hard, right? And you might be better off with, you know, with 60% speed over, over, you know, 10 meters rather than, you know, 80% speed for five meters and then 40% speed for the last five meters. Yeah. Right. And, and arriving with, with the, coordination, like one thing that I found interesting, we, we talked about the role of the hurdle, right? Like hurdles are really great movements, uh, like a t- traditional track hurdle are really great movements to connect into longer running, but they're very bad for anything where you have to switch coordination patterns really quickly out of it and move into a new coordination pattern. They don't give you a lot of athletic options. Um, I think Kong vaults are, are actually also like there, there's certain coordinative patterns that are very available right out of a Kong ball, but then there are others that are kind of difficult to get into. And so sometimes, you know, a dash vault is going to give you a better athletic upright stance and ability to change direction quickly coming out of something. Yeah. Um, just to kind of close that thought with some real life testimonial right here. Um, this is from one of our um, higher level speed parkour athletes and world chase higher in Colorado and he's been for the first time training sprints um, the past, I think we're at four or five weeks now. So a lot of sprint and acceleration work. And we just had a, we call it a speed jam format in Colorado. We first started doing this like right before the pandemic hit. Um, but we would have two different courses set up in the gym that are running at the same time. So yeah. rather than, in my opinion, one of the biggest flaws of parkour speed competitions in the past is like, you got a ton of people who show up and then one by one, they're running through this thing. And it's like, it takes forever and it's actually kind of boring even. Yeah. Um, I do really like that head to head format that fig does despite, um, my personal feelings of fig, but yeah, the speed jam format, we've got these two courses going and it's just like an hour long and we're just running one after another, boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. And you can go back and forth between the courses and do it as many times as you want. I think, um, last year when we did it, we had like, we filmed everything. We had like 200 or 300 runs in mm-hmm. an hour oh, split wow. amongst all these different people in the community. And that is, in my opinion, that's how you're going to get really good is you got to accumulate yeah. all those reps and um, just keep it nonstop and keep it going. But we just had one of those in Denver and one of our athletes who's been doing this sprint work for the past four or five weeks. Uh, he said, definitely felt my acceleration training coming into play, felt really prepared for it and strong enough to handle whatever, even without practicing much parkour specific stuff lately. So nice. I think that, uh, yeah, just, yeah. just being able to manage your speeds. And even if it's only like two or three or four or 5% faster 
in between every other obstacle, that's going to compound and add up to like pretty significant. Yeah. Gains. 2% is a lot <laughs> when you're, when you're working at a high level. Um, so let's, I wanted to go back to this idea. So, you know, my approach I think has been a, a lot of, of kind of let's really lean into the skill, right? The idea is that we know that you're, you're creating intense physical demands on the body when you do parkour or when you do martial arts. And there are great athletes who only do their sport, right? Some of the most powerful athletes that you and I have known in the parkour community literally just do parkour. Mm -hmm. So we know that, 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 that you're going to get a lot of the adaptive pathways that you want addressed just by practicing the sport. So you practice the sport as intelligently as you can and, and, and kind of look for how you can get as much of what you're trying to develop out of the sport as possible. And then where there are weaknesses, then you go and seek some sort of ancillary training. And I've tended to go and like say, Hey, we're getting the coordinative demands. We're getting all these demands met in the sport. So now I just want to address some strength and some speed and some mobility, right? Like, let's get that. And so I've, I've tended a little bit more towards a, a mostly general strength as a support for the skill. So I'll do climb ups as part of my skill training, and then I'll go do muscle ups as part of, uh, of my general training or, or pull ups or one arm chins as part of my general training. Mm -hmm. Now uh, I've been thinking about this and specifically in relationship actually to the, to the sprint work, like, do I want to just do parkour and have fun and play parkour and then go run track sprints? Or do I want to find something that's actually in between to help create the connection between them? Right. And, and so that to me is what a lot of your parkour strength looks like. It's an attempt to create better, um, better special strength exercises for parkour. So I'm curious if we could talk about your thinking about the balance between skill, general strength and, and special strength. And then also, if you, if you've really thought about it, how we apply that to uh, speed and acceleration work. Yeah, um, I definitely agree that we we got to do both. And if you can bridge the two, that's maybe even better sometimes. Not that you completely can, um, but you can try. And yeah, a lot of the stuff of what we've been doing is over the years is kind of experimenting with attempting to bridge that gap between the general and the specific to just make it a little more um, bang for your buck in your training. So um, a couple of things that come to mind are when we're doing the sprint work specifically, um, I'll just read you like a couple of the things that I have in some of the programming that um, a lot of our athletes are doing to get better at speed parkour, world chase tag type stuff. Um, one of the notes that I made on this, it's, you know, it's basic sprint work, but I, I have a little asterisk here. It says, choose and vary your start surface, slope, distance, angle, curve, et cetera. Yes. So I, I recently read some study that was showing athletes made far better gains when they were training on different surfaces. So like, uh, not just training on the track or not just training on the field, like change it up, go on the concrete or the packed earth or the grass or the turf or the track, like being able to, even if it's just subconscious or intuitive, like being able to adapt your rhythm and your timing and your speeds to all these different surfaces and even these like slight curves or zigzags or slopes, the overspeed training, going slightly downhill or going slightly uphill. Um, I think these are all just like really subtle, but underrated ways to adjust your sprint work, to be able to apply better to something like speed parkour. 
Yeah. Um, and then also I'm just, I'm literally scrolling through some of the programming that we have our athletes on right now. But uh, another thing that comes to mind is we change up the starts a lot. So we're doing a lot of like the two point split foot starts, which is mm -hmm. pretty common and standard, but also I'm a huge fan of the prone start. So yeah. laying down on your stomach with the arms fully bent and being able to pop up into a sprint as quickly yeah. as possible. Um, we've even started to see some pretty wild techniques. Like if you know, Olaf Wood, he, he started mm -hmm. like almost kind of scorpion kicking and like. Um, turning his hip out and like being able to get it across the starting line in front of where his hands are. This is in the video yeah. demo that I have of him um, demonstrating this exact movement, but we were just experimenting with this stuff and he figured out that it actually gets you um, a little bit faster than a lot of people. They just, they're going to go very symmetrical and push up and then have their feet like very in line and then get into it. But he was like turning his hip out almost like yeah. that, the weird, like lizard crawl type stuff but he adapted that and was able to get out of his prone start into an acceleration even quicker. Um, and then the steel starts. Oh yeah. Back to the prone start. I, I do a lot of the, the push up, So like popping up into whether it's a sprint or a plyo. So a broad jump into, if you can like adjust yourself next to you, like a hip high wall, one of my favorite climb up drills actually doesn't even really involve a climb up. It's just doing a push up into a plyo, into a support, into a top out. Okay. Yeah. And basically, um, what you're teaching is like, you're using a push up off of flat ground to help get better at climb ups. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people really, um, think about that or they underestimate how useful it can be just to do like, it's almost just like a burpee. It's like doing a burpee, but it's similar to a climb up, um, in the sense that you're pushing and linking it into the next jump or sprint um, pretty quickly. So yeah, we're just, we're experimenting with little, subtle details like that, just to try to make it a little bit more specific, like what you're saying, bridge the gap between the general and the specific. Um, that's, that's awesome. So we're, we're coming towards, uh, the end of, of, of the time we got here. So I wanted to ask you kind of the last thing I really wanted to ask you about was your thoughts on the energy systems development for parkour athletes. I mean, in particular, as athletes start to train for world chase tag, like I was talking to Justin Sweeney about his experience at world chase tech. And he was talking about how one thing that apex team seemed to have over everybody else was the ability to sustain sprint performances. So they would do a route and then be able to do it again. And, um, he was talking about another Colorado team that was really struggling. They were very physically skilled, super talented athletes, but, um, <laughs> you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but they, they were exhausted after one, one run and weren't able to sustain their performance over time. Yeah. And so I'm curious if you've, you've looked into, you've, you've experimented with like longer term aerobic development or, you know, uh, really intentionally addressing anaerobic repeat behavior ability. Um, and how you, how you see that, like I've, tended so you know back in the day you know you and i were both sort of interested in crossfit as a kind of you know relationship to parkour early on we both had a little bit of a relationship with the crossfit community i remember you had crossfit classes in the first apex gym right yeah we were an affiliate back in yeah. i think 2008 or 9 and and so the, the crossfit model was if you train in the glycolytic system you're going to get adaptions in the 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 oxidative and phosphagen system, right? So that was based on like the Tabata protocol, right? They found that, you know, you do 
20 seconds of, of hard work, 10 seconds of rest, you repeat that several times and you have this, this beautiful curve of adaptations across all these different systems. What CrossFit didn't really highlight was that that lasts for about six weeks. Is <laughs> my understanding of it. Um, and so the what gains last for six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, you see a, a real drop off in, in how much they're improving in the, in the, in oxidative capacity. And so, so, so CrossFit was all about like, basically your CrossFit's pretty much always glycolytic and uh, aerobic hybrid, um, except for the strength training. But, um, I started talking to years later, I started talking to some guys who are training people for the games and they're like, we've gone in the exact opposite direction. We do glycolytic work very minimally and only in preparation for, for the games. What we do is a ton of aerobic base work and a ton of, of strength and speed work to build up the phosphagen system. Cause those adaptions take a long time to develop, but they're relatively persistent. Whereas glycolytic adaptions, um, are, are very cheap. You can, you can improve very rapidly in the glycolytic system, but, um, it, you can't improve as long, right? You can't keep improving quite as long when you're invested in that. So it's like the classic CrossFit wads or something that they would do in the last eight weeks out before a competition. But then mm-hmm. as they're going into preparing for that, they're putting in miles of running, miles of bike riding, miles of rowing. So that's been my, my thought. I've done a little bit of it. I've done it a couple of years where I've done like a, a real aerobic base block in the fall. And then I'm trying to sprint, you know, at least as much as I can, basically, I'm trying to always have sprints in my program, unless I'm really focused on the, on the, on the, the oxidative side. So I'm curious about your thoughts about it. Have you dug into this and like, what have you seen as far as energy system work for parkour athletes? Cause I think mm-hmm. if guys are going to get really serious about world chase tag, you're going to see that become a real necessity for athletes. Right. Yeah. Um, no, we haven't gone like super deep into some of what you're saying there. Um, it's very interesting to think about because, um, well, a couple side notes here for the world chase tag stuff, the past two years, it's been fairly short notice. So we didn't even really have much opportunity to train um, specifically the speed and the cardio and the power and stuff like that. Um, It was, it was mostly just skill training and huge shout out to Amos for kind of heading that up with the teams Mm -hmm. and really going into that. I wish I could have contributed more via like the, the track and field and sprint and acceleration work and stuff like that. And we did get to do a little bit of it, but it was just too short notice. Um, and just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't practical at the time to go super far into that, but now we have, um, it's mostly for sure that the, the WCT five is going to be in June. Okay. So we're like six months out right now. And we yeah. have the opportunity to actually periodize some training and programming for these high level world chase tag athletes and see if we can, not, I mean, they already are so skilled and they did so well um, winning the WCT USA the past two years, but now we have the opportunity to maybe experiment with some of the stuff that you're saying um, yeah. to really get the, the cardio up even higher because honestly, um, I mean, our guys were in shape, but I think they could definitely be in better shape. And so this next year, I think in June, we'll, we'll get to see the all yeah. of those different worlds like really meet up and hopefully produce like um, yeah. peak performance in that area. 
Yeah, that's so. So, I mean, essentially, like because of the nature of how parkour competitions have have come up, we've had to run a concurrent or conjugated type programming system. But now you actually have the opportunity to do a block program, right? So it'll be interesting to see if athletes try that and how they how they do. And yeah, I'll, I'll be really curious to to see what you yeah. guys land on. Love to talk um, to you about that. One other side note is uh, I don't know if you saw, but. WCT, the UK championships was on ESPN2 last night. Did you catch that? Oh, I did not see that. I would love to see that. I wonder if that's still available. I, I imagine they might like re-air it in yeah, the coming yeah. days or weeks, but the the record of most points scored in a row was broken. Oh, okay. Um, actually, I didn't see it, but I, I heard the guys talking about it and I I might be a little bit off on this, but I think Xavier from, I think he's from Mexico. He is on one of the teams and he scored he won a match on his own. Oh, so he wow. scored eight points in a row. <laughs> That's crazy. And beating the record, which was set yeah. previously by Kyle, who um, put up six points against the track. Kyle guys. from Hollywood Freerunner? Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, so I I definitely, like when I first saw Kyle competing at World Chase Tag, he was pretty unknown um, yeah. a couple of years ago. And I went up to him. I'm like, dude, like, who are you? Who are you? Like, <laughs> what, did, what did you do? Like, what's your background? And he was, he's from Minnesota. He was saying that, he just trained a lot of like action sports and snowboarding and Ninja warrior and CrossFit and parkour. And he just kind of did all of it, but his cardio was like, I think pretty next level, probably the best there. And yeah, now we get to see if, if we can catch all our guys up to that level of cardio and yeah. the sprint work and all the skill and the strategy that they already have. Um, that's going to be pretty cool to see um, the yeah. progress and the evolution of the, the sport there. Yeah, I'll have to have Amos on to talk about, uh, maybe have you guys both come back on to talk about WCT specifically, because I think I'm very curious about all that. I had Damien and uh, Christian DeVoe on um, to talk about World Chase Tag, which was a super fun conversation. And they told me that um, that Amos had like a folder of strategies. <laughs> it's like, you know. Yeah, uh, Amos, super Amos has gotten incredibly deep into that. And yeah. it's, I mean, it speaks for itself. The, the skills yeah, the results have been amazing. led with the athletes and done really well. So we had a couple of converse, uh, questions from the audience that I wanted to get to before we, we close up here. So um, sure. Philip asks, uh, when should students start with parkour strength training age-wise? Or how would you, or how would strength training be altered for younger athletes? That's nine to f- uh, 14 years old. Hmm. The unfortunate answer, I think, is it depends. depends. (laughs) You hear me me say that a lot, but yeah, it depends on their goals. Are they doing it like recreationally or do they have aspirations to compete or um, perform or something higher like that? Um, Let me ask it. I'll I'll just kind of rephrase it. The way that you currently have parkour strength laid out or the way that you teach your parkour strength classes uh, um, or taught your parkour strength classes back when you had a gym. is there any reason that you wouldn't have a nine, 12, nine, 10, 11, 12 year old do those classes? Uh, no, I would, yeah, I would recommend some form of parkour strength training for athletes of all ages and levels for sure. Um, it's going to look a little bit different based on their age or their skill level or their goals and their training history. But yeah, I think, um, tapping into that more strength and mobility and speed and power work, all these things are going to help you not only learn faster, um, because let's face it, parkour has evolved into a power sport. Yeah, yeah. Even just these, these basic skills, like for most people, a congo, a climb up, a backflip, these are power moves. Yeah. And if you don't develop your strength and your power, 
um, you're gonna have a lot, of, you're gonna have a much harder time learning this stuff. So I think it, it really is important to take that seriously. So you can A, learn faster and have more fun, but B, more importantly, not get hurt as much. Yeah. Um, I'll just offer my own answer to it as well, yeah. which is that, so the research generally is, is very positive for strength training in youth athletes, right? A lot of the fears that people have about like growth plates closing early and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff is, is, is overhyped. I do think that there, that the way that we approach youth athlete training, especially like there's a big difference between a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old, but you have to be hyper-focused on whether it's actually fun for the athletes and be a little bit more adjustable in, in what you're doing. And I would say that you should focus on mobility, elasticity, and coordination above maximal force production when we're looking at athletes in that age group. Um, we, we don't need to be in a hurry to get them lifting really heavy when they're at that age. They can still squat. They can still deadlift. They can do all those activities, but we're not going to try to progress them as rapidly through them. And we're going to try to vary that training up and create a little bit more, um, more of a coordination and elasticity focus. That's my approach to it. I think if people are interested in this, like, uh, James Smith from the U of strength and Jeremy Frisch from, uh, uh, I can't remember Jeremy Frisch's company, uh, but check them out on, uh, they're doing great stuff in this area, specifically oh, long-term athletic development and youth, youth, youth strength training for athletes. One other person I would throw into the mix there is, I, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think it's Joey Burgles or Burgles. Okay. Um, familiar. I think I found him first through like FRC type stuff, okay. but he does a lot of work. He posted on Instagram. If you look up his account, he's working with not only high level adult athletes, but also lots of like middle schoolers. And he's having them do like Kazakh squats and a skips and all these yeah. just really good, like basic strength training drills to improve their mechanics. They're not working with like a ton of weight or anything, but they're getting the foundation they need to maintain that mobility that I lost yeah. um, and also to improve their mechanics and get a little bit of strength work as well. But yeah, it's not, it's not like they're throwing on a ton of weight and like just trying to get them as strong as possible. They're just building the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So then the next question is, um, from Ben fam, you probably know Ben, um, he's yeah. asked how often should you sprint and at what volume one of his cross country coaches had them doing, uh, 200 meters times 20. Oh <laughs> this one seems Rough. to be an overtrained side unless going 80% versus something like 200 meters by five. Uh, <laughs> I think 200 meters by five is a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's I, an intensive workout. If you're, if you're balancing it with, with parkour and, and strength training, like, I think it's really important. People realize that the type of training is so dependent on the other training demands. You can, you, you can't train like a weightlifter when you're doing six days of parkour a week. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What's your yeah. thoughts? Um, well, first thing I'd say there is you mentioned cross country, which that's a whole different realm yeah. from sprinting. Um, I think it's, it's going to be far better for parkour athletes because it's a speed and power type sport these days. At least most people train like that. Some people do like to just go out for a mile run and mix in some parkour, but I haven't heard too many of those stories. Um, so yeah, I, if I were to make some, again, I, I don't like to make blanket recommendations. I would say it depends on your goals and stuff like that. And also what you said, your other training that you're doing throughout the week. But if you could even just get one day a week where you're doing like an hour long sprint training workout and 
that's going to help you a lot as far as just better mechanics, more acceleration, deceleration, um, higher top speeds, and you can apply all that to all of your other parkour um, movements as well. And um, yeah, even just one time a week. Um, yeah, that, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think one of my one of the principles that I'm really fascinated by is the principle of like um, the point of diminishing returns on any investment, right? And also the point of negative returns, right? Mm. So if we like overtraining in this case. Yeah. So if for those if you end up watching uh listening to this, then I apologize, but I'll have to visualize it. But I will actually draw this out. So if you if you were training, right, and you started, I I never sprint, you're here, right? And you started some kind of sprinting with some level of volume, you're going to start improving. There's a point at which the curve is going to start bending over. The amount of increased improvement that you get per unit of extra time, effort, et cetera, is going to start, it's going to start lowering, right? So it's maybe like, you know, I, I sprint one time a week, I do a hundred meters and that's all I do. Right. And it's like, okay. Um, and I'm improving my, my sprint times by a 10th of a second every six weeks. And it's like, okay. So then, then you go, okay, now I'm going to do two, 200 meter, uh, 200 meter sprints a week. And then maybe you're getting to, you know, two tenths of a second improvement. Right. But then you go to 300 meters and now you only get a, a, uh, 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 half a 10th of a second, right. Improvement. So now you're, now you've got diminishing returns relative to what you've invested in time. And then there's a point at which you're training more and you're not gaining anything more. <laughs> now you're wasting your time. And then there's a point at which you're actually starting to get injured and regress based on your training. And I've done this to myself. So the general rule is that we always like, especially as a general athlete, if you have lots of demands, you want to be closer to the point of diminishing returns. <laughs> than to the point of, of negative returns, right? You want to bias towards not doing more um, that's actually going to be costing you recovery that could be spent on something else that would be more. And, mm -hmm. and I actually think that um, for, for, for physical attribute-based training, so that's strength training, sprint training, power training, a lot of times once a week is, is the best place to start. Right? It doesn't mean that you want to stay there forever, but usually the research shows that if you train once a week, you're going to improve in whatever characteristic you're training that one time a week. And then a lot of times it's like optimal maybe is three times a week, but it depends on the context of the athlete. And once you're getting towards optimal, you're actually closer to, to breaking yourself too. So my advice would be start with once a week, start with a relatively low volume of sprint work. And if you're improving, then keep doing that. <laughs> and if you want to improve, and if you really need to improve faster, then increase a little bit. Yeah, um, I pretty much agree there. And just because I have the, the sprint workout that some of our speed parkour and world chase tag athletes are doing, um, this is what I would deem to be like a great start just to start um, cleaning up the sprint work and getting a little bit of extra power and stuff as well. Um, just a quick summary here. We're doing like a 10 minute warm up. Um, with all the kind of basic standard stuff to make sure that you're good. Then a dynamic warm up, getting a little bit more into the specific, like some of the track and field type dynamic warm up drills that you see, you know, like your, your lighter skips and karaoke side shuffles, like all these kind of things. 
Then we're getting into a little bit of sprint mechanics, just a couple of rounds of um, like your dribbles, wall sprints, a walk skips, etc. And then we're specifically working on our starts and our acceleration just for like five meters or so mm-hmm. um, with different starts. And then we get into some of our sprints, which we actually keep like relatively shorter. So um, we'll start around like even just 20 meters at first. And then we're progressing that maybe add like three to five meters per week for some progressive overload. Um, because 200 meters, like that's, that's probably a little excessive in parkour. You're not really ever going to go that far or um, that long. It's, it's an energy without... system development tool at that point, right? It's less yeah. specific and more general. Yeah. So we're keeping it pretty mu- um, much shorter, which makes sense because in parkour, you're often dealing with like short run-ups or awkward run-ups where you just get like, you know, five, 10 meters. You're not really going to even hit top speed necessarily. Um, but yeah, keeping it short, eventually adding it a little bit longer. And we're only doing like four to six of those shorter sprints at first. Yeah. So. so your total volume in, in, in meters of sprinting is if you're doing six, 20 meter sprints, that's 120 yards, right? Total. Um, in uh, addition to yeah. some of the shorter acceleration, that's, that's your, like yeah. your hundred percent work or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked with a coach. And, um, elite track coach, his daughter was six time national champion. Um, his son was like, I think the world record holder for the long jump in 11 year olds for some period of time, something like that. Um, we had a, a 27 foot long jumper on our team that year and, uh, and a 10, three sprinter, uh, who was a 16 year old. So pretty, pretty elite athletes. Um, he basically, his rule is basically that like very rarely would he go over 600 meters of, of, of sprint work in a session. And that was for people who are sprinting, you know, three days a week. And that was their primary sport. Mm -hmm. Um, now there's, there's definitely like big variations in how this approach, this would be what's considered a, a short to long approach where you're, you're basically just trying to get really high quality acceleration work, really high quality max velocity work. And not spend any time in sub-maximal efforts that, you know, they view as, is just fatiguing the athlete without accruing the adaptions that they want. There's also some really great track coaches like Clyde Hart, who go long to short, where they start with multiple mile runs and then work people down towards the short sprints. And that's proven to be successful. Uh, one of my good friends, Joel Smith, and I've talked about that. We think that there's actually variation in the type of athlete who, who excels. Some athletes do better with longer, more tempo style runs. Some athletes do better based on really short effort type things. From a parkour perspective, what I would say is that you should start as a short to long sprinter. And if you, once you work yourself up into the long sprints, if you find that you're really responding well to them, then you might experiment with going the other way in a new block of training. Um, just because you got to be careful of the volume demands on your body on top of parkour. Like, I think people really underestimate how much fatigue is the cause of the injuries that we experience. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, if you're throwing something like a really intense long to short sprint thing onto your parkour training, you're either just not going to have very good parkour training a lot of the time, or you're going to injure yourself because you're, you're not managing your fatigue very well. Yeah, I agree there. Awesome. Uh, Ryan, it's always super fun to talk shop to you. I feel like these are just, it's just really cool how much we're, we're thinking about the same things and 
how, how much depth we can get into on this stuff. So thank you very much. Um, really excited about parkour strength being out there for people. People can check it out. Um, we'll put it a link in the show notes. Anything else people you got coming up that people should be aware of? Um, that's the main thing. And now we are, like I was saying, we're, we're nomadic now we're, we're going all in on digital building online. So we're starting to pump out a lot of blogs and free content and stuff as well. And, and a lot of it's already out there, but if any of you are reading it, watching it, let me know what you want to see next, because we are going to be pumping out a lot more soon. Very cool. So, um, yeah, for folks who are watching our channel, loving what we're doing here. Um, next week, we're going to have John Verveike on live, which is actually also going to be the relaunch of the Embodied Movement Summit, which was a huge success. People were absolutely blown away by that. Uh, Ryan's business partner, Amos, was one of our speakers there as well. So if you want to see Amos, and uh, he's going to be talking about falling and how we how we control falls at that. at that. Um, so keep your keep your ears peeled for that. That's going to debut next week. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have other chances to work together and, and keep, keep pushing the industry forward. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, Make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.